Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. Mind the way there? Whatever, you can see. (laughs) We've done our best. Let's carry on. Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside and began again to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. Then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. He came forward and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to appoint. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called to all of them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it's not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. And as his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus on the way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Years ago at a conference I was at, it was like a youth minister's conference. Um, A couple thousand youth pastors gathered in a hotel ballroom. And there were these seminars. I was there with Ken Bell. And one of my favorite writers happened to be speaking in the main sessions and the seminars, and I thought, oh, 
chance to see him in a seminar, right? One of your people that you really like, and he's a big name. And by the way, I heard about some of the big names over there. Did you hear some of them? Like Seth Rogen? Natalie Portman? Let's finish the, no, the, um, the, like that big? I think, to be fair, a lot of them I think have submitted videos, but some of them might be there. Apparently Martin Short, that would be my favorite of the three. Um, others? Okay. Rick Mercer, well he'll be there because he's Canada. Well so is Martin Short, so is Seth Rogen. And we have the Holy Spirit, yes, and Keith. It's a perfect day for this, this text um, because this kind of division between the, the fortunate and the regular or the unfortunate plays in this text. And at this conference years ago, I was going to see this, I went to the seminar, one of my favorite writers, he since died, his name's Walter Wongeren Jr. And I loved hearing his session because it turns out he was just as good, even better speaker than writer, and that's not always the case. Sometimes you go to see some of your favorite writers speak and you're like, they're a really good writer. Um, but I remember a number of things that Wongeren talked about, but in the seminar, the small session, one of the things he talked about, it was on preaching or something, how to preach, um, so blame him. But he said, if you ever confess sin in a sermon, make sure it's your own. And so now I'm going to make you even more uncomfortable because I'm about to confess some sin. Have you ever been in church settings like that where it's like, now there's time for public confession and you're like, no, let's get this done. Um, I'm from a Plymouth Brethren Church and that happened and it can turn kind of crazy. So don't worry, it won't be too jarring for you. This sin is a sin of kind of hierarchy. I used to be a hockey coach. I coached for about 10 years. And I, most of that, I think all of that was just the North Van like rec commission coaching various teams. And in most rinks that we played, um, everybody went in the same way and walked to the dressing rooms through the same hallways, right? But there were a few places that were, ready, special. And the way you knew they were special is because you walked towards the building and sometimes even before you got to the building, there was a way that members went and a way that non-members went. And I was a non-member, so I sinned. And there were often times, and I have my child with me, so I'm teaching him to sin as well, generationally. Um, I would plead ignorance and go the member's way. And then sometimes people would say, excuse me, sir, are you not used? Like, if you just go with confidence, even with a hockey bag, <laughs> right? And especially if you're a man, my age, whatever, right? You're fine, sir. You must have paid... Um, but what was the difference between the people who were allowed to, and by the way, the non-members way, you had to go through like the catacombs and where the, the crypt, you know, and through where the urinal cakes are stored <laughs> and then climb up again. And I'm, the members way was like they've got hors d'oeuvres and that kind of thing. Now, what's the difference between a member and a non-member? Money. Money. Um, particularly... Someone, it's possible that you had a lot of money but didn't pay them that money and then you're a non-member. But that's where they look at you and go, you look like you might have money so you probably paid us so you're probably okay. That's the difference. And that is my sin that I sometimes broke the rules. And I always wanted to beat those teams more. Sorry. <laughs> Not their fault. Who gets status? Who gets elevated? 
And I'm going to give you a kind of a theological, spiritual, gospel thing right now. Um, I'm not, I have no interest in condemning the people who are members. That tendency to say, yeah, those people are terrible, aren't they? Is a tendency that is the same mistake as the other side. It's a tendency of separation. The Christian gospel is supposed to be about solidarity, not separation. But in my experience and in my hearing of what is often sold as the gospel, we make separation that is even harder and more vivid and more consequential than the separation of somebody walking down the member's hall or the non-member's hall. We actually turn the story of the gospel into a story of separation. So much so that we're still in a place where we get up here and we say, everybody's welcome here no matter who you love. Because we're so used to stories of separation, and I'm convinced, 100% convinced in my faith that the gospel is a story of solidarity, not separation. And we're not there yet. I don't think we'll even be there in my lifetime, which, you know, that's... I, we're not there yet. We're still grappling with a gospel of separation. And some of you are used to that. And you came to know Christ in the midst of that gospel. And so you make the mistake of thinking, because you came to know Christ in that gospel that is faulty, it's about separation, that must be the gospel that you insist upon from now on. These stories that we look at today begin to point us to that way of solidarity instead of separation. So whether like me, you're the non-member going, those terrible members, that's separation. Or you're the member saying, I'm really glad that I've got this. We can do better than that. So three stories. The first one, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. This is in many ways, the, well, it is the most important part of all of this long section of Scripture, but it gets not a ton of verses. But it's key. It's the key that opens the other stories. He tells his followers... Um, that what's going to happen to him. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be tried and handed over. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Hold on to that word because it comes up in a few minutes again. He's going to be tried by his own people, condemned to some degree, but they can't kill him because it's the Gentiles who have power, the Romans in this case. So they're going to hand him over to the Romans and the Romans will take care of the bad stuff. And he tells them this, <laughs> and we don't know how they respond, but we do kind of know that they thought they were on like a become a celebrity path because people were following Jesus and they kind of thought, well, you know, we're close to him and so we're probably going to get some of his glory. So the very next scene, two followers, James and John, two very close followers say this and just appreciate the kind of humor and the broken humanity in this text. Um, it's easy to condemn them, and I think in some ways we, we need to say like they were really, they didn't get it, but you don't want to only condemn them as if you're different than them. We do this kind of thing all the time. James and John say to Jesus, after he's just said what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be under, 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 lower, lower, lower still, they say, we have a question for you, and then they follow it up with, if we ask you anything, will you do that thing for us? And Jesus is like most of you would say, why don't you tell me what the thing is first? Right? And they say, well, simply this. We would like to sit on either side of you in glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. 
They literally say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Notice the difference between what they ask and what Bartimaeus asks later when we get to that story. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Often in any religious circles, Christian church included, this is our question. Dear Jesus, would you do for us whatever we ask of you? So you can take that for your own personal life and all the things that are upsetting you or the comfort or the status or the security you want to have. Jesus, will you do whatever I ask of you? We are to petition Jesus. The Holy Spirit interprets, right, our groanings. But it's a similar question. Jesus, will you do whatever we ask of you? Jesus, will you bless the ministry of Cap Church? And here's the criteria we have. We don't really know what your criteria are. In fact, yours are kind of terrible <laughs> because yours are lower and lower and lower and lower. And nobody wants to go to that kind of church, so make it good. Will you do whatever we ask of you? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Hang on to that question. It matters in the next story. Grant that one of us would sit on one side of you, the other on the other side, and Jesus says, Great follow-up, Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. Let, let that, don't, you know, don't worry that much all the time about what I'm saying, except those places where the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And I, I think this might be one of them, so I'll kind of help you a little bit. Um, you don't know what you're asking. That can be a prayer prompt right there. Dear Lord Jesus, how do I not know what I'm asking when I pray to you? You can grow in the spiritual life with that question. You don't know what you're asking. It's not condemning. There is something almost parental in this kind of love. This was talked about in a podcast that Kim recommended to me. It was great about this, this, uh, these three stories. I can tell you that later if you're interested in listening to that kind of thing. It's a rabbi and a minister speaking. It sounds like a joke, but they're speaking about this text. Can you drink the cup that I'll drink? And then you say this. Like, keep, we keep getting, they're clueless, they're clueless, they're clueless, they're clueless. Can you, he keeps giving them opportunities to humble themselves. Can you drink the cup that I'll drink? And they respond. Yeah, sure, we can do that. <laughs> this is a reference to the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament, the cup of stumbling. The cup of, like, Condemnation and separation, death, darkness. Jesus says you actually will drink the cup, but you don't know what you're asking. And what you've asked is determined not even by me. He's saying that it's determined by Father. The way of the world, Jesus says, is he instructs them a little bit here. He's like, I understand, again, he's being compassionate to them. I know what matters to you. He could say the same thing to me. He could say the same thing to all of us. I know what matters to you. I know what you think a life consists of. I know the way of the Gentiles. If you get higher, more status, more comfort, more recognition, even if it's in a relatively small part, I think this is true, then you can kind of lord it over others. And that's the way of the Gentiles, the way of the world, he's basically saying. And some even turn into tyrants. Just look around the world today. Some who have power and are called strong men. Without making a political comment, I was happy this morning when I saw the news that a political leader, I won't name him, uh, called Vladimir Putin a weakling. He's a weakling. 
But because he has power, he lords it over others like a tyrant. And Jesus is saying that. But it's easy for us to say, well, we're not like him. We're not like that tyrant. But we still kind of want that status. You still, I know you do. Many of us, most of us, I know you feel better if you kind of have that comfort. And there's a security that can come in it. But the Son of Man, Jesus says, now this is a reference not used often in the Gospels. Son of Man, Son of God, um, all these terms, Son of David will come up later. Son of Man means the human one, the most human one, or in my theological understanding, the one true human. But it's not human as apart from God. It's human in God. Our humanity is at its fullness in Christ. The Son of Man, he's saying the way of Jesus, His way. The Son of Man came, and this should be astounding to us, and we still don't really believe it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so if you want to recognize His presence, and it's not to say that the celebrities aren't impressive, but you are more likely to encounter His presence in the servants. Don't look for those with status and power, but look for those who consistently give their lives. Sometimes those with status and power do that. <laughs> Story three, they're walking along. They come to Jericho. They're moving closer to Jerusalem. It's interesting because when Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to me, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, and he says these terrible things are going to happen. The Gospels also say, um, I think it's in Mark actually, that he set his face towards Jerusalem. It's so powerful. And then a third of the Gospels is taken up by the last week of Jesus' life. We're moving there right now. The next story after this section is the triumphal entry. The beginning of Holy Week, right? Jesus, even though these terrible things are happening to him, sets his face towards Jerusalem. And this story comes in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And a man cries out. His name is Bartimaeus. Now, Bar is a prefix. Timaeus is a man's name, but this is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That's what it means. So it would usually be written with a small b and then a dash, basically, Bartimaeus. We've seen it differently than that, right? Bartimaeus, who is a beggar and blind, and it's, I, I loved it. Actually, Robbie, you set it up really well with the prayer. Like when you, I think you said ears to see or something. It was perfect I, on purpose because this man is blind, but he sees with his ears. He hears that Jesus is nearby and cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. One of the places, one of the few places in the Gospels where someone identifies Jesus as a son of David, and it's a blind man, so right away the writer of this story is helping us to see, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, that the blind man sees better than the disciples. While he is blind, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets shushed. <laughs> Shh. See what happens if I keep doing that. Shh. It's okay, I don't mean it. Kids, kids are so, like lots of kids are so, as soon as they hear a shush, it must be me. <laughs> Shh. They shush Bartimaeus. But Jesus stops 
Jesus says, stop, stop. And Bartimaeus would have been the one who was used to hearing those words directed towards himself. Stop, be quiet, shut up. But Jesus is saying that to who? To the people who are doing the shushing. People like me love this, and I'm so sorry because I know we need order and all that kind of thing, but I love in settings, church settings and otherwise, when shushers get shushed. Jesus shushes, I can't say it, the shushers. And too often in our religious lives, we can think that shushing people is a spiritual virtue. Like we have some kind of, like we, we know Jesus more than other people do, kind of, so shh. Listen to us, listen to us, listen to us. Like we run interference for Jesus. And that's what these disciples think they're doing. They don't think they're doing something bad. They don't even think they're doing something against Jesus. They think they're acting on behalf of Jesus. May we hear what the Spirit has to say to us. They think they're acting on behalf of Jesus by shushing the man and shushing the world and shushing someone who would be identified as sinful because in that day you understood the understanding would be to some degree that somebody who faced this blindness must have sinned. So they're doing Jesus' work, they think, but Jesus makes them quiet. And this man who has said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus asks him what he wants. It's the exact same question that he asked the disciples. But they'd already said, will you do for us whatever we ask? In other words, they knew what they wanted. Bartimaeus, who was blind, you would think he would be more clear about what he wanted, right? The ones who had more, to some degree, knew exactly what more they wanted. We also want this. We also want this. The one who had less wasn't clear what he wanted. His request was simply for mercy. In other words, his request was an understanding that he could trust in Jesus without naming, this is exactly what I want you to give me. But Jesus indulges him, I mean loves him, and says, now hear it. How, how would this sound different to this man, Bartimaeus, than to James and John who'd ask for glory? Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? It's great someone found the bowl. Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, you can make me see. I don't even know if he was going to ask that. He was simply trusting in Jesus Christ. But Jesus' interaction with him compels him towards that. Jesus tells him that his faith has healed him and tells him to go. We might give all the press to the healing, but the chapter gives much more space to this story, in this story, to the asking and the interaction. The healing always just gets a very brief, brief telling. It's not primarily what the story's about. The story's about this trust in Jesus, and the contrast is right there from what the disciples had asked just a few verses previous. In fact, the story that gets the most text in this in these verses, 
is the story of the disciples asking for glory. If we were writing it, we might give the most press to the healing. Here we have eyes to see. We, we get description of the crying out and the call for mercy. We get description of the inability of the disciples to see the way of Jesus. This is what Cap Church could offer the world. Dear Heavenly Father, dear Lord Jesus Christ, in this world right now where everything or so much is about separation, would you give us eyes to see that the gospel is about solidarity? And I don't want to stand in condemnation of my friends, ministers, others in the work of Jesus Christ who in my mind are still selling separation. I know that some of them, I can't speak for all, wished that that was something else they were selling. We're not there yet. But the gospel will move forward and it's not, it doesn't mean we trust in Jesus Christ less. Please hear that. We trust in Jesus Christ more if we know this gospel is a gospel of solidarity. If you see the work of Jesus Christ in the mercy that those people across the way are showing right now in the world, just a bit of that will help you with this solidarity. We get it wrong so often. We ascribe worth and value according to these things of separation. And I've seen it, honestly, on, you have too, on both sides. You can see if you are never privileged enough. It's such a great word for that. I don't know. It's the wrong word. But to find those, like, you know, comfort spaces. If you're never privileged enough to do that, you can kind of feel alienated for sure. And then you could condemn those who are in those spaces. So it's not to say there's virtue on one side or the other. Because I've also known and been in some of those spaces with people who are nothing but loving and gracious and wonderful to the people who aren't in those spaces. It's not about separation, it's about solidarity. Jesus, by our standards, is a bit of a loser. I read an article this week in the Globe and Mail. Um, I think I have a picture of the... Uh, that says, rich and successful, question mark, it's likely you're just lucky. Now, I don't mean to condemn those of you who are rich and successful. This was a study done over 40 years, and it basically said, what are the factors that make people quite wealthy, like really, really wealthy? And it did list things like talent, right? You got ten they tend to be people who are smart, not always, right? They tend to be people who might have a good business sense in our world, whatever it is. But actually, over a 40-year study, the most consistent factors seem to be given like all the other factors being the same, seem to be uh, a few lucky breaks. <laughs> and that people who were equally talented, often equally as creative, when you're talking about the arts or, right, equally as creative, whatever it might be, who got unlucky breaks instead of lucky breaks, wound up in a very, very different place. This is, and often those who are the wealthiest know that really a lot and are really compassionate to others. This is right in our world right now. Jesus, by our standards, I'm not saying this to like be a clever preacher or something. I'm saying this to give us a bit of a door into growth in faith. Jesus, by our standards, is a loser. He gives his life 
and nobody's there at the peak. You know Philippians 2. The one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant, became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. And then I love people like, yeah, but look at the next part. And God exalted him so that, right? You know. But what Jesus did was this. The way of Jesus Christ was the way of lower. That's, his, that's the call. The call isn't what can I do so that I might be exalted. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus to his disciples says, what do you want from me? And they ask for status. He says to the blind man, what do you want from me? He asked for sight, but his biggest request was mercy. Bartimaeus for us again. Bartimaeus for us again becomes a model of faith. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. That's the call of the church. Have mercy on us. And then we'll hear him. What do you want me to do for you? And we'll follow. And that's where the call of the church becomes the hope of the world. God is merciful. And when we see his mercy, we follow. We follow this way of mercy. Not a way of separation, but a way of solidarity. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for this time. And we are so grateful for the very many people in the world who don't necessarily believe what we believe, but who act out your mercy. Bless the work that's going on over there right now. It's not that it's more important than what we are doing, but it is, it is in part, part of what we're doing. May we honor it and honor them, people serving, some compelled by faith that we identify with and others not thinking that way. Help us to know your gospel as a gospel of solidarity. Protect us from condemning those who haven't heard this or seen it, particularly those in your church, and give us a faith that is deeper and more hopeful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.